Good morning, everybody. Have your Bible with you this morning. Revelation chapter 5 is where you need to go. Revelation chapter 5. Last week, we continued our look at this amazing vision that was given to John of the throne room in heaven. It was glorious and splendid and awe-inspiring. So far, in chapters 4 and 5, we have seen the one sitting on the throne. We've seen the reaction of these incredible creatures to his presence. This is none other than God the Father. And even the most spectacular of heavenly beings do nothing but worship him all day, every day. They extol his holiness. Holy, 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 they say. They delight in his eternality. They refer to him as the one who was and is and is to come. They praise him for his role as the creator of all things. And they declare his worthiness. And then John notices something in the hand of the one who sits on the throne. In his right hand, he has an important document whose seals must be opened. But they can only be opened by one who is worthy. And this mega-voiced angel that we talked about searched everywhere, but no one was found. No one was found worthy, and John began to weep greatly. But then an elder told him to stop weeping because there was one who has overcome. And he is the Lion of Judah, the, the Root of David. And then John sees him, but he doesn't look like a lion. Rather, he is a lamb standing as if slain. He has died as a sacrifice and has overcome death and now stands alive. Jesus has died and risen again. He was dead but is alive forevermore. And this is the heart of the good news, right? That Christ died for our sins and rose again. And that by trusting in him, we can have eternal life. We see about this lamb that he is omnipotent and omniscient. You remember the seven horns and the seven eyes, that's what they mean. And we learn that he is worthy. And so it is good for us to sing like that today. He is worthy because he purchased people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation with his own blood. And so as Ryan rightly pointed out, he is able to take the book from the right hand of him who sat on the, sits on the throne. By way of application, last week I told you that we must behold the lamb, this lamb that was slain and stands today. We must behold him, we must look at him, fix our eyes on him, we must study him and know him. I want to be like the choir sings sometime. I want to have the attitude that the choir sings about when they say, I want to know everything about that lamb. I want to be growing in my familiarity with the lamb so that I can worship him as he is due. I told you that we also need to tell the world about this lamb. His global sacrifice that he purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. His global sacrifice compels our global witness to that sacrifice. And so we should tell people here. We should tell people here amongst us, in our families and at our workplaces and on our teams and in our schools. We need to be telling people here. And the question that we often ask is, who's your one? Who's one person in your orbit of life, in your sphere of influence that does not know the Lamb? that does not trust in Christ as Savior and Lord? And can you pray for them? And can you share the good news with them? And will you do that this year? We need to be telling people here, and we need to be telling people there. Global missions must be a priority for the people of God. We must give our lives to pray and to give and to go for the sake of the spread of the gospel to the nations. And then finally, I told you last week that you should live like a lamb. 
that what we learn about this lamb is that the way he overcomes is not through the tactics of a lion, not through the strength of a lion, but through death. He overcomes through humility and suffering. He overcomes. And I shared a quote with you that I wanted you to chew on. And I, and I encouraged you to live like a lamb. Live like a lamb in this world and let him be the lion. Well, this week the crescendo continues. I didn't think it could get any higher. I didn't think it could get any better. I didn't think it could get any louder or any greater, but in heaven it does. In heaven, from the beginning of chapter 4 all the way through the end of chapter 5, it is an upward trajectory. And maybe we started out too strong here a month ago uh, when we started back into chapter 4. Maybe we started out way too high and there was no place to go, or maybe we just need to let it loose today. I want you to see in the text today all the creatures join in the worship. It is not just the living creatures, it's not just the elders, it's not even just myriads and myriads of angels. It's all the creatures. All the creatures get caught up into this worship, and I don't want you to be left out of it today. So let's read it together in chapter 5. Today we're going to study closely verses 11 through 14. This is what God's word says. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders... And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray together. To our Father in heaven, the one seated on the throne, and to the Lamb, you are worthy. And we want to join today with the myriads of angels with the elders, the living creatures, and every created thing in shouting about your worth with a loud voice. Not just today and not just in this place, but every day in every place, we want to shout about your worth. You are worthy. And we are delighted to be in your presence today. We are delighted that you have seen to it that we would have these words breathed out of your mouth, penned by John, to help us see you more clearly and to inspire us to worship you more passionately. Father, if, if there be anyone in this room that is unaffected, unmoved by this, I beg that by your grace you would wake them up, for they must be sleeping. More than that, I pray that you would raise them up, for they must be dead. And you alone bring dead things to life. And so we ask that you would, in the name of the Lamb, we ask these things. Look at verse 11. There is a ton going on in verse 11 and the first part of verse 12. It says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice. First thing I want to draw your attention to right off the bat is the sensory nature of all of this. Then I looked and I heard. In other words, this is not an inkling. This is not a feeling. This is not an understanding that John is trying to convey to us. It is an experience that he is conveying to us. And it must have been absolutely overwhelming for him. 
I mean, for me, the last few weeks in this room have been a bit overwhelming. I cannot imagine what it must have been like for John to see the things that he saw, to hear the things that he heard, maybe even to smell the things that he smelled. Remember last week, we've got incense in the room. Maybe even to smell the things that he smelled in this experience. It's amazing to me. And it's helpful for us to acknowledge that this is what's going on because it's going on in order to stir him up. And it is going on in order to stir us up as well by the things that we hear and see in the text today. Let me say this too right from the beginning. The glorious things that we have seen and heard in chapters 4 and 5 over the last month as we've been studying it should anchor our hearts for what is to come. This is an important point today that we need to put down an anchor in chapters 4 and 5 so that we will be prepared for what is to come. Because right around the corner, next week in our study, as we move on to chapter 6, trouble is coming. Will we get swept away by it? Will we be overwhelmed by the trouble? Or will we stand firm, persevere, and overcome? Much of the answer to those questions will depend on where our hearts are anchored. Are they anchored in the throne room? Behind the veil, as the author of Hebrews says? Are they anchored in heaven? Are they anchored in the presence of the Lord with the Lord? Or are our hearts anchored here in this broken world? We anchor our hearts here in what we've seen over the last few weeks. It will be helpful, not just for the sake of our study of the rest of Revelation, but for our very lives as we live in this broken world. It was helpful, we believe, for the lives of the early church to whom this book was originally addressed. It was good for them to hear chapters 4 and 5 in the midst of the suffering that they were experiencing. It's been good for the lives of believers over generations since then as they have sought to navigate this troubled world. It's good for us here and now with the troubles that we face presently to be reminded of the truths of chapters 4 and 5, to be called always back to chapters 4 and 5. It is good for us as we prepare for the end of all things, as we anticipate tribulation to come. We must not lose sight of the one who sits on the throne. We must not lose sight of the lamb that was slain. We must not forget that all of this is unfolding. All of this that is unfolding is in his hand. We're glad that the book is, is, is in his hand now. Don't forget that he died. This lamb died and purchased you with his blood. Don't forget that he has made us a kingdom and priest to God. Don't forget that we will reign with him forever. Don't forget that. Don't forget the things that we have seen and heard in chapters 4 and 5, especially as trouble comes. Well, in this section of Revelation, we are going to be introduced to the next concentric circle around the throne. Remember, we've talked about how this whole scene is arranged in a series of rings. In the middle, you've got the one sitting on the throne, the Lamb, and the seven spirits of God. They are the focus of all the attention. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are at the very center of attention. And then you've got the four living creatures beyond that. Then you've got the elders around them. And now we are introduced to this army of angels that, that creates the next ring. And I want you to notice from this text today that there are a whole bunch of them. There are a whole bunch of these angels. The language here is not intended to be precise as if to give a head count, but it's intended to be overwhelming. It's intended to leave us in awe of the sheer number of angels that surround the throne. Basically, in the language of the day, a myriad 
was the largest numbered group that the language had. It was equivalent to 10,000. So 10,000 times 10,000 is what he says here. There were that many angels around the throne. You know what 10,000 times 10,000 is? It's 100 million. 100 million angels around the throne. But then he doesn't leave it at that. He says it is also, there are also thousands of thousands, which could be even more than 100 million if you multiply 100,000 times 100,000. What's the point of all this? There's a bunch of angels. There's a bunch of angels around the throne. It's not as if there's a smattering of angels or a few angels. There are a ton of angels around the throne. And what are they doing? They are singing about the worthiness of the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne. And this language of myriads of myriads is Old Testament paint right out of Daniel chapter 7. Look at Daniel chapter 7 on the screen. It says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire, and a river of fire was flowing coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Same language, right? Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The author of Hebrews actually gets straight to the heart of what this means in chapter 12, when he uses a form of the word myriad, which is usually translated as innumerable. Innumerable. Look what he says in chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And that's what John sees and hears in this text. I saw a multitude of angels, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. In other words, an innumerable number of angels gathered around the throne. And what are they doing? They are worshiping the one who sits on the throne and they are worshiping the lamb. And this is a common picture, a common picture throughout the Bible that God is surrounded by a multitude of angels. Well, the last thing I want you to notice before we move on uh, to the next verse is that what they say Maybe even what they sing, because it seems pretty clear that they are singing this. It's very poetic the way what they say is structured, so they're probably singing it. I want you to notice that they say it or sing it with a loud voice. It's the same kind of word that was used for that angel at the beginning of chapter 5 when he made the search. When he cried out with a loud voice, is anyone worthy? Is anyone worthy to take the book and to break its seals? And no one was found, right? He cried out with a mega voice. What's the same mega voice word that is used here? Only now it is not in search of one who is worthy. It is in praise of the one who is worthy. Does that make sense? So all of them now, all of these angels are crying out with a mega voice. And we want to join them in crying out the worthiness of the lamb and the one who sits on the throne with a mega voice. In other words, our worship of the Lord should be loud. And, and man, I want to I stop here and just talk about how blessed I have been to sit in front of the O family on occasion uh, because they sing with a mega voice, all of them. Mom and dad and all those little kids, they sing with a mega voice all the time. And it is a huge blessing to my heart. Now, I will say that most of them are not talented vocalists. but they are exemplary worshipers. Man, I wish we could fill this room with people who are glad to sing with a mega voice, whether they're good at singing or not. Listen, I will let you in on a secret. 
we've got enough people who can really sing in this room that the rest of us can just let it rip, right? We're not going to undo the beauty of it. So let's sing with a mega voice. Can we do that without shame? We'll, we'll see in a little bit. We'll see in a little bit if we're willing to do that. So they sing out with a mega voice. Look at verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They extol the worth of the Lamb. And this is very reminiscent. The way they do this is very reminiscent of chapter 4, verse 11, when similar creatures sing similar words unto the one who sits on the throne. Now, once again, what we learn here is that the lamb that was slain and the one on the throne weigh the same. That's what the word worthy means. It means to weigh the same as something else. And the one who sits on the throne and the lamb weigh the same. They are both worthy. The father is God. And is to be worshipped as God. Amen? And the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God. And he is to be worshipped as God. Amen? And the Holy Spirit is God. And he is to be worshipped as God. Amen? So what we see here is, is some elements of Trinitarian theology and worship going on here. And not to get too deep, not to go down the rabbit hole of the Trinity in this moment, but I do want to affirm three statements that the Bible repeatedly states about the nature of God. Three statements that sum up biblical theology about the Trinity. Number one, there is one God. Mark that down. There is one God. Number two, God is three persons. We see, we see both of those things throughout the scriptures, and there is a little bit of tension there. Sometimes that is hard to understand. There is one God. God is three persons. And number three, each person is fully God. You read through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation, and you will see those three truths affirmed over and over and over again. And so how that all works together is a little bit mysterious, is a little bit hard to understand, but we embrace it because the Bible says it. There is one God, God is three persons, and each person is fully God. And this declaration in this verse by the sea of angels is super instructive to us about what worship is supposed to look like. It teaches us that worship is about declaring to God the truth about who he is. It's about declaring to God the truth about who he is. We see this in Psalm 29 in a beautiful way. When the psalmist invites us to ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in holy array. That's what worship looks like. It looks like ascribing to the Lord glory and strength and honor and power and riches and wisdom and might, all of these things that the angels are doing in Revelation. We see it also beautifully in First Chronicles chapter 16, where we are invited to sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. 
Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Tremble before him all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established and it will not be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. This is what worship looks like. It looks like saying things that are true about God unto God in praise to his name. Let me remind you about this quote from Craig Keener that I shared last week when he said, In the Bible, worship was often joyous celebration. Expressions of joy are over 100 times in the Psalms and often includes shouting over 20 times in the Psalms. The heart of worship, listen to this, the heart of worship is declaring to God how majestic he is and how great his works are, which in short means articulating the truth about him. Theology can thus be worshipful, though biblical worship is generally not simply rational, but affective as well, devoting one's whole being in attention to God. That's what these angels are doing. They are stating, declaring the truth about God to God. They are delighting and extolling who he is. And our worship should look the same. Look at verse 13. It says, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and the things in them I heard saying. Now this verse provoked a question this week in my own heart and had discussion with several people. It's a question that may be a little bit distracting like many questions can be in Revelation. The question is this. If every creature is involved in this, does this mean that unbelievers are involved in what happens in verses 13 and 14? If every creature is involved in this, does that mean that demons are even involved in this? Maybe even the prince of demons himself involved in this? Well, it's an interesting question, right? And you might want to chase that on your own for a little while. And if the answer is yes, which it may well be, then it has to be yes in the sense of Philippians chapter 2, a a passage that you're familiar with. And this is a passage that I'm going to share more than I intended uh, just because it's so good. It's like one of those where, like, what I want you to hear is at the very end, but but there was so much good in front of it that I want you to hear that too. So look at Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, so if the scene in Revelation chapter 5 of every creature singing his praises includes unbelievers, demons, and even the prince of demons, they are doing this, but they are not doing it gladly. They're not doing it gladly, but they are doing it. They are recognizing that Jesus is Lord. But that doesn't seem to be the sense, the tone of this passage, and could perhaps distract us from the overall point, and the overall point is this. Worship in the throne room is not limited to heavenly beings. Worship in the throne room of God is not limited to heavenly beings. People are involved. 
there's another ring around the throne, in other words. We've got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit at the center. We've got the living creatures next. We've got the elders around them. Then we've got these myriads and myriads of angels. And then we've got all of creation. And what I want you to see is that everyone around the throne, everything around the throne is worshiping the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Nothing is exempt. Everything worships. Everything joins in. In other words, no one sits it out. No one in this scene rolls their eyes and crosses their arms and abstains from worship. There is no everything except the really tough manly guys. Everything except the really tough manly guys was singing praises to the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne. Or only those who had a special vocal talent were singing praises to the one who sits on the throne. What I want you to see is that everything is involved in this. And that might be super convicting for some of you who week after week after week come in here to worship like this. And you're like, I'm just going to stand here while everyone else does it. No one's doing that there. Like you are totally out of place. You are totally out of place if that's what you're doing. And so I, I, just, I am inviting you to boldly, shamelessly worship when we are together. And that's going to look different for different folks. Maybe sometimes it is your head is down and your face is covered and you weep before him. Maybe you do shout and clap and, and run around. I don't, I don't know what it looks like. I just think it doesn't look like this. It doesn't always look like Everyone, everything is worshiping. And look at what they're saying at the end of verse 13. They say to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. You've got to love this, right? The one who sits on the throne and the lamb receiving worship and praise at the same time, in the same breath. The one who sits on the throne and the lamb in unity with one another as they receive worship from every created thing. And what I want you to notice most here, though, is that the praise that they receive is forever and ever. There is blessing and honor and glory and dominion that belong to him forever and ever. And that's why I invited you early on to put your anchor down here. Glory, honor, dominion belong to him forever and ever. That helps us when life gets difficult. If we will recognize that the dominion, specifically even the dominion, belongs to him forever and ever, that will help us when life goes sideways. The expository commentary says it like this. Clearly, chapters 4 and 5 inform the remainder of the book. Despite the persecution and opposition facing believers in the province of Asia, God is the mighty and sovereign creator reigning on the throne. And Christ, the son of David, is the lamb of God who ransomed them. The beleaguered Christians are God's kings and priests, his kingdom on the earth. This is going to help them persevere. It's going to help us persevere. Not just in our study of Revelation, but in our life in this broken world. This would help the persecuted church that received this letter. And it will help us here and now especially as the end draws near. Look at verse 14. I love this part too. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. 
So now we're moving back to the more inner circles. They are responding to the worship of the angels and all of creation. So this whole thing is kind of going in and out in the throne room. The living creatures and the elders are praising. The angels are praising. The, the, all of creation is praising. And then it moves back to the center. And so it seems like everyone is responding to the worship of those around them. They are impacted by the worship of people around them. It's a beautiful thing. And notice that the living creatures keep saying amen. That word is not a word that simply ends our prayers. It it does not mean the end. Nor is it a word that has anything to do with gender, as was mocked in the news a few weeks ago. That word, amen, is a statement of affirmation, agreement, and desire. A statement of affirmation, agreement, and desire. As I've told you before, I would translate it like this. That's right, bring it on. Like when I hear the word amen or when I say the word amen, in my heart I'm saying, that is right, bring it on. Some translations render it as let it be or so be it. I love the message paraphrase here. Um, I don't don't often commend the message to you uh, as you study. It's great to read, but as you study, you should use a translation and not a paraphrase. But Eugene Peterson renders verse 14 this way. I'm not sure if I put this on the screen. Did I? No. He says, the four animals, that's what he calls the living creatures, the four animals cry out, oh, yes. (laughs) Not amen, but oh, yes. And I like that a whole lot, that all these creatures, they were so glorious and so splendid and closest to the throne, when they hear the praise of every creature, they say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, bring it on. And the elders fall to their knees and worship. The elders, once again, find their place on their faces in humility and worship. And so let me remind you once again what we see here. No one sits it out. No one merely observes. The living creatures don't watch every creature and and say, that's interesting. They watch what's going on in that outer circle and they themselves respond to it with similar praise. My friends, worship is not a spectator sport. Worship is not a spectator sport, and so I'm inviting you to get in the game. Get in the game gladly. You'll get in the game at one point, whether you like it or not, but get in the game gladly. Get in the game loudly. Get in the game humbly. Get in the game together for the praise of the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Here's application number one. Worship him. You could have probably guessed that, right? Like that's what we need to do in response to this text is we need to worship him. We need to ascribe to him the glory due his name. In other words, we need to say things that are true about him to him. And in order to do that, you're going to have to know him. In order to ascribe glory to the Lord, you're going to need to know that he is glorious. In order to ascribe power to the Lord, you're going to need to know that he is powerful. In other words, to say true things about him to him, you're going to need to know some things about him. And so I I commend to you personal spiritual discipline. Personal spiritual disciplines are so important that you would be reading your Bible, like on your own, not just letting me read it to you, But read your Bible, study your Bible, meditate, memorize the scriptures on your own. Personal spiritual disciplines are so important as we get to know the one that we are worshiping. And corporate worship is also important where we sing songs that are true, 
where we preach the word. That, that is important that we would get together and we would experience some of this like the, the, the elders, and I mean the living creatures and the elders and the angels and every creature and it's back and forth and they are inspired by each other's worships. We, worship. We experience that when we're together in this room. Small group Bible study is also important as we get to know the Lord so that we can worship Him more faithfully. As we discuss the Word together and as we share our lives with one another, that helps us in our worship so that we can ascribe to the Lord true things about Him. Does that make sense? If we're going to say true things about Him to Him, we've got to know true things about Him. And we find that in personal spiritual discipline, corporate worship, and small group Bible study. Those are three great ways to know Him more so that you can worship Him better. Number two, Number two about worship him is we join together in our praise. I've pointed out that there seems to be an escalation in all of this. One group feeds off the other. And this is part of why I can't wait to be in that crowd. Like I can't wait to be part of that scene as we worship the one who sits on the throne and the lamb together. I can't wait to experience that. But it's also why I can't wait to get together with you on Sunday mornings in this room like this. It's also why I can't wait till we can all be together in this room again. Man, I think it'll be loud. it better be loud that day. Why would it not be? In fact, that leads me to the third thing about worshiping him. Number one, we ascribe glory to his name. We say true things about him. Number two, we do it together in our praise. And number three, we do it with a loud voice. Loud voice, like mega voice worshiping. I, I talked to Laura about this this week. I texted her. I said, hey, it's mega voice worship week. And she sent me back a picture of mega mind. The, the blue cartoon character with the big head. You know what is weird about him? He's got a tiny little mouth. He's got a mega mind and a tiny little mouth, and we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be like mega mind. We want to have a, a, a giant brain that's full of truth about who God is and a giant mouth that is glad to proclaim it. You know the old hymn that says, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise? You know what that means, right? It's not, oh, for a thousand people who have individual tongues and they could get together in the same room and praise together. The picture is actually, I wish I had a thousand tongues. I wish I had a thousand tongues in my mouth to praise my Redeemer with them all. You want a mega voice? I hope you do. He deserves a mega voice praise. Number one, worship him. Number two, this remains. Chapter four and five Remains. Put your anchor down here. Put your anchor down in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation and know that this is happening now. That in the throne room now, this is what's going on. No matter how messed up things are here, that's what's going on in the throne room right now. And know also that those who are in Christ will be there one day. We, we will be in that room one day. This is hope that is ours as those who are in Christ. And this is hope that can be yours. This is hope that can be yours. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And one day this will be you. You'll be in the ring singing his praises. Therefore, if we put our anchor down here, we know that this is what is happening now. We know that this is what is in store for those of us who are in Christ. Therefore, we can persevere and endure through the difficulties here. Right? We've said that the banner that is going to hang over our whole study of Revelation is this. It gives us a vision of Jesus, a vision of Jesus that inspires and empowers faithful endurance through difficulty, through suffering and persecution unto eternal victory in Christ. We boil that down to two phrases. We say revelation is full of awestruck wonder 
patient endurance, faithful endurance, awestruck wonder that empowers faithful endurance. And this text is designed to do that. You might think, oh, this is just awestruck wonder. Revelation 4 and 5 are just awestruck wonder. No, 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 friends. That awestruck wonder empowers your patient endurance. Connect those dots because they're there for a reason. There's a reason why chapter 4 and 5 comes right before chapter 6. We meet the four horsemen of the apocalypse and all this other stuff that's going to happen. Maybe even is happening. Chapters 4 and 5 give us awestruck wonder that helps us endure through difficulty. Reed Roper said the other day, he said, I can't conjure up awestruck wonder. I can't conjure up awestruck wonder. It is a supernatural work of God. And if if Reed is right, and I think he is, then we should ask him to strike us with awe. And then he says, I know it's a work of God when it leads to faithful endurance. Like, I, I know I've been struck with awe from the Lord, not just if it results in praise, but if it results in endurance, in perseverance. I think he was connecting two really good dots, whether he knew it or not. He was connecting the two dots of revelation. So, friends, let's be struck with awe and let's endure with faith. No matter what this world throws at us. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we do ask that that you would use the last month that we have spent together studying Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 to strike us with awe. That we would be amazed about the one who sits on the throne and the lamb and the seven spirits sent out into all the earth, that we would be absolutely amazed. And that that amazement, that wonder, would inspire endurance in us. God, help us to put an anchor down here so that we won't drift away when trouble comes. Father, I pray that for your people, your people here and now, who are experiencing suffering and affliction and pain and tribulation, that we would always remember that this remains and that this is our hope. Father, I pray that that you will use the awe and wonder of chapters 4 and 5 to bring lost people in, to bring unbelievers in, to bring outsiders in. Pray that you would awaken them to your glory and majesty that you would awaken them to their sinfulness and depravity and that you would turn their eyes to Jesus to see him as the lamb who was slain for them, the lamb who died in their place and rose again. I pray that you give them faith to trust in Christ and repentance to turn from sin and that you'll be honored as you bring people to yourself. In Christ's name we pray.